The following Dharma discourse was given by Jeffrey Shugan Arnold at Zen Mountain Monastery. Shugan Roshi is the head of the Mountains and Rivers Order and abbot of the monastery. This talk, like all of our talks, is offered free of charge. If you would like to make a donation or find out more about our various programs, visit us online at zmn.org. Thank you for listening. Good morning, everyone. So this morning we're celebrating and reflecting on the life and the life's work of Reverend Martin Luther King. One of the things that Buddhism teaches is that we all have influence in the world because of the law of causation, that it's not possible to not have influence. That means we all have within our lives, throughout our lives, a moral choice that we need to make, in essence, every day. How are we going to be in this world? Because we have the ability to bring forth harm and injury and great pain into the world, into the lives of people, into our own lives. And we also have the opportunity, the ability to bring great good in small and large ways into our lives and the lives of others. And throughout history, there have been times, times of urgency, times of need, where a person has appeared who seems at the times, in retrospect, to be just the person who is needed to bring about change and good. And their combination of intelligence and thoughtfulness, clarity, skills, courage, always courage. And to bring all of that to that moment of need, that moment of possibility. And I think Dr. King was such a person. And such people always do what they do and can do what they do because they're, they rely upon and are helped by many other people. And it's important to appreciate that too. And so in this informal talk, I want to draw on <clears throat> some of Dr. King's own words. These are drawn from some of his speeches. He said there are literally two Americas. One that is beautiful for its situation, and in a sense, this America is overflowing with the milk of prosperity, the honey of opportunity. In this America, millions of people experience every day the opportunity of life and liberty, pursuit of happiness in all of their dimensions. And in this America, millions of young people grow up in the sunlight of opportunity. But tragically and unfortunately, there's another America this other America has a daily ugliness about it that constantly transforms the ebulliency of hope into a, a fatigue of despair. In a sense, the greatest tragedy of this other America is what it does to young people, to children. Little children in this other America are forced to grow up with clouds of inferiority and forming every day in their little mental skies. And as we look at this other America, we see it as an arena of broken hopes and shattered dreams. Many people of various backgrounds live in this other America. 
but probably the largest group in this other American proportion to its size is the population of the American Negro. And it's still true that in this one country, we have different countries. In this one society, we have different societies. That we all are born with the same nature, the same essence, but we're born into different worlds and the world receives us differently. That doesn't make all the difference, but it makes a lot of difference. And we can think about how we ourselves live in two countries with our own body and mind. We discover the basis of all the conflicts that we see in the world as they arise from these two aspects of ourself. There's an aspect of ourself which is entangled and gets easily mired in greediness, stinginess, fear and anger, intolerance, confusion, apathy. But for many, there's another aspect of this self. It's present within, within everybody. But for some, it seems to stay very dim or almost beyond view throughout their lives, but it's always there. In others, it comes forth. It shines forth, and that's an aspect that yearns to be free, vast and boundless, to be awake and clear seeing, to be compassionate and kind, to want to actually have a good influence, be a good influence. And so in our tradition, we sit, we examine this mind, the basis of all the good and the basis of all the harm. And in that way, we begin to gain understanding about how what we see in the world tragically can make sense. How our delusion takes a world that is perfect in its nature and turns it upside down so that what we see is distortions. What we see are not radiant living beings, but others. And so we sit to examine the maker of heaven and hell, the destroyer of life and the giver of life. And we chant sutras and we study teachings and we that speak from and to our enlightened mind and we do prostrations to express gratitude and humble our aggressive tendencies. We examine and commit to untying this knot of our historical inheritances of racism and patriarchy and gender bias, sexual orientation, bias, all of the biases of class and faith and any of the ways in which we create a false category, which seems to be or can be made to appear to be a clear line that designates people with inherent qualities, inherent differences, intrinsic characteristics, which the Buddha realized is false, cannot be. There is no such thing ever, anywhere, in any realm, in any time. And so as we endeavor to see into and uproot those false views, those biases within ourselves, and the way they take residence within ourselves, and then come out. 
I often think of that in terms of, as we see that within ourselves, within others, what is it that we are so afraid of? What is it that we are so afraid of in each other? Or is it even that? Is it just within ourselves that drives us to this fear, to the anger, to the hatred, to the disrespect, find something to solidify and make it a cause, make it an ideology, make it seem rational? What is the fear and why do we cling to it so? Of course it's greed. We see that. It's power. We see that. But what else is it? The Buddha said, hatred is never appeased by hatred in this world. By non-hatred alone is hatred appeased. This is an eternal law. And so Dr. King says, let us hope that the spirit of love, and he spoke, of course, in the language of love, and Buddhism does too, but in, in love, let us think of it in terms of compassion, selfless compassion, not just the desire, but the commitment to actually alleviating suffering. So this love has the strength, the force of that, the wisdom of that. Let us hope that the spirit of love will become the order of the day. It's important that in, in an aspiration, in a great aspiration, to transform one's life, that we have this sense of what is possible. That is present within every religion, I think, that may never be fully realized, but is a vision and not just a hopeful dream. It's not a fantasy. In Buddhism, it comes directly out of our understanding of who we are, that all the suffering we experience in our lives is not necessary. It's not decreed by nature, by law, by any external entity. It's the workings of our mind. And if we can liberate ourselves, that means others can liberate themselves. That means it's possible that we could all be liberated. And so he goes on to say, we can no longer afford to worship the God of hate or bow before the altar of retaliation. The oceans of history are made turbulent by the ever-rising tides of hate. We're in such a tide ourselves at this time, multiple tides. History is cluttered with the wreckage of nations and individuals that pursued the self-defeating path of hate. As Arnold Toynbee said, love is the ultimate force that makes for the saving choice of life and good against the damning choice of death and evil. Therefore, the first hope in our inventory must be the hope that love is going to have the last word. And while we talk about making peace, creating peace, in a sense, we don't. Peace is what is present all the time. Just like wisdom is what's present all the time, but in nature is present all the time. So we don't actually create peace, although we can, just as in practice, we can do all that is skillful to calm and let go of and shift the activities of our non-peace. And so, there is the love that is hardest 
to practice, to love those that are hardest to love, to have compassion for those that are, we find it hardest to have compassion for. This is the compassion of Kanam Bodhisattva, the greatest force in the human realm. And strangely, it also seems to be very fragile, right? We can easily be convinced that this love, this compassion, the desire for every person, every creature to be happy and safe without suffering is naive, is impractical, is untimely. We can fear this love, think it's not strong enough to change the hearts and minds. That's why the Buddha said we have to have courage to face what is true. Any truth, really, but the, the, the greater the truth, the more courage we need. Again, the question, what is it that we're afraid of? Martin Luther King said, I say to you, I've decided to stick with love, for I know that it's love that is ultimately the only answer to humankind's problems. And I'm going to talk about it everywhere I go. While we were setting up the altar, somebody mentioned that in this photograph of Dr. King, that it looked like he was looking towards God. And I said, it seems that he did that all the time. He goes on to say, I know it isn't popular to talk about it in some circles today. And of course, he was criticized greatly by many for his, his devotion, his commitment to nonviolence, to peace. He says, I'm talking about a strong and demanding love, for I've seen too much hate. And so I've decided to love. If you're seeking the highest good, I think you can find it through love. I've seen too much hate. I've decided to love. How many times did he have to decide that again? Maybe just once. Maybe every day. What is it for you and me? We know that through our study and our zazen and our attention to the world around us, we know that the forces, the clashes, the mental afflictions, emotional afflictions, can be easily roused so easily roused, unless we've come to the point of actually taking responsibility for our lives. And so we see, in that sense, it's easy not to do that. It's easy to hand that over to somebody else, to abdicate, in a sense, what cannot be abdicated. And in that, we're, as in our own practice of choosing Wisdom, choosing compassion, choosing to practice. We have to choose to do it again and again and again. The aspect of mindfulness that is remembering is just another way of saying the same thing, which means we have to remember what's important. We have to remember what's possible. We have to see in the wakes of our own lives the things that we do not want to do again. See and learn from the, in the wakes of other people's lives, examples that we do not want to follow. And as we do that, we become more and more familiar with our own heart and mind, our own detachments, our denials, our lack of courage, blaming, lacking in response, taking responsibility. We see how easy it is to turn away. And we turn away. 
But then we turn back. We come back. Think about that. It's easy to turn away. Everybody turns away. Everybody gets lost. Everybody gets caught in their indulgences. Otherwise, we wouldn't need to practice, right? That's easy. But then we come back. We should not underestimate how powerful that is. And that you can always, that you can never, there's never a time when you cannot do it. There can be times where it seems too hard, too difficult, too fruitless. You can come back from that too. And in that, we gain more and more understanding when we look around and see all the ways in which people turn away, all the ways in which people take refuge in hatred and blaming, and not owning, taking ownership of their lives, which sometimes can be very difficult when lives have been very difficult, are very difficult. And that's the great challenge of Buddhist practice. It recognizes how lives can be difficult, made so by our own actions or by the, other, the actions of others or societies. It acknowledges that and it says, yes, and you are the principal agent of your life. What choice do you make? The Buddha said, there are those who do not realize that one day we all must die, but those who do realize this will settle their quarrels will be very attentive to where they put their attention, what they devote themselves to, where they take refuge, because they know keenly this does not last forever. And so the only way we can find peace and freedom is when we face those difficult truths, our karma, our mortality, our pain and confusion, the suffering in the world. And that includes what we have done, what we do, and it includes what others do and have done. What we have done to others, what others have done to us. This is what we carry. This is the burden we carry. This is what makes it difficult. This is what makes practice so powerful. And so to help us, the Buddha taught Aimsa, non-harming, may all beings be at ease. Let none deceive another or despise any person in any state. Let none through anger or ill will wish harm upon another. Even as a mother protects with her life her child, her only child, we should bring forth a boundless heart that cherishes all living beings. It's a practice. It's a choice. It's an intention. It's a commitment. It's a living thing. And because of that, it's always available to us, always available to us. Because Buddhism is non-theistic. What you do is not dependent, ultimately dependent upon another. Influenced, yes. That's why the Buddha emphasized that what we do in the Buddha Dharma is not dependent on any external force. Nature, God, any other form. All people have but a nature, the same essence. All are ultimately, and in every moment, inherently complete and radiant and free. 
but we grow up very differently in different worlds. And those differences become solidified into concepts, fantasies, really. Make-believes, make-believe worlds where people are inherently different, and so we create bias and discrimination, and we inject that, we meaning people, those who have the greatest power. But we all basically are breathing that air, drinking that water, and so it affects us, in sense, infects us all, and it becomes calcified in institutions and policies and laws and wherever we go. So Dr. King said, if repressed emotions are not released in nonviolent ways, they will seek expression through violence. This is not a threat. It's just a fact of history. So I've said, I have not said to my people, get rid of your discontent. Rather, I've tried to say that this normal and healthy discontent can be channeled into the creative outlet of nonviolent direct action. Peacemaker, troublemaker, change maker. I have consistently preached that nonviolence demands that the means we use must be as pure as the ends we seek. Why? Because the path is non dual. We cannot separate the means, the methods, the path, the practice, and the fruit. If we get there by divisiveness and attachment and anger and hatred, what, and in which means we are training ourselves in that mind, in that heart, in that emotion, in that worldview, what makes us think, what makes anyone think that when they arrive at that place that they seek, that they will know how to be anything other than that? And so we have to go the way we want to be. He said, I've tried to make it clear that it's wrong to use immoral means to attain moral ends, but now I must affirm that it is just as wrong, perhaps even more so, to use moral means to preserve immoral ends. The Buddha realized all quarrels are manufactured, constructed, which means they're unnecessary. Something we do and we don't have to do. They all arise from a grasping mind, from selfishness, selfish motives, that places one person's desires or a group's desires, one person's well-beings or a group's well-being, above another. It can be motivated by greed and wealth and power. It can arise from a difficult life, a lack of basic needs, food, water, work. that ends up being used to pit one against another, and then to use, because we're rational beings, to make it rational. We do this to you because you are that, and we are this. Reverend King said, in spite of the spectacular strides in science and technology, and still unlimited ones to come, something basic is missing. There's a sort of poverty of the spirit. 
that stands in glaring contrast to our scientific and technological abundance. The richer we become materially, the poorer we have become morally and spiritually. We have learned to fly the air like birds and swim the sea like fish, but we have not learned the simple art of living together. And this is why love and compassion are the essential fundamental practices. And this is why as Buddhists, to practice love and compassion, we have to gain wisdom. We have to understand. We can't just have a good intention. You probably all know that. You have had a good intention, held it deep in your heart, felt strongly about it, and then struggled to live that. Even simple things. And that's why all of our practice and training, our precepts, our meta practices, our compassion, our concentration, is to bring forth that great compassion that is, by its very nature, impartial, unbiased, magnanimous. That's why it said the Buddha's teaching which was his expression of compassion was like rain that falls down equally everywhere. And then as we develop more compassion, that allows us to develop and deepen even more our mindfulness and our concentration and our wisdom. They're all working together. Of course, because it's non-dual. And in order to be truly compassionate, we have to wrestle with Mara, that which would, which does thwart those good intentions, undermines what we know is true and just and right for us and others. But we have to do that. We have to wrestle without hatred. We have to meet what is hard with gentleness. We have to meet what is indolent with vigor meet our impatience with patience, bias with impartiality, judgment with equanimity. It seems sometimes that there are no shortage of illnesses, but there's no shortage of medicine either, because they're non-dual. So in this realm, every illness comes already with its medicine. In other words, we have to discover that we can, already are, a person of wisdom and compassion, of love and generosity. And then we have to practice, work, live our lives to bring that out, to live it. And that in doing that, we do that in all and every way possible for others. Dr. King said, every person lives in two realms, the internal and the external. The internal is that realm of spiritual ends expressed in art and literature, literature, morals and religion. The external is that complex of devices, techniques, mechanism, instrumentalities, by means of which we live. Our problem today is that we have allowed the internal to become lost in the external. We have allowed the means by which we live to outdistance the ends for which we live. So much of modern life can be summarized 
in that arresting dictum of the poet Thoreau, improved means to an unimproved end. This is the serious predicament, the deep and haunting problem confronting us. I think of this as, it's not that we are too smart for our own good, but we are not committed enough to the good and make it equal to our smartness. That we bring things into being, we create things, we inject them into societies with little understanding of what will happen next, of how that may become a great force by which we all begin to evolve. And so years ago, there was the introduction of what was called the precautionary principle, mostly in terms of things technological. If we don't fully understand or understand adequately, not just the positive, because that's also always what's been, what's advertised, but also the negative, then we should not bring it forth until we are clear. But of course, that's all assuming that we're clear about ourselves. Reverend King said, this call for a worldwide fellowship that lifts neighborly concern beyond one's tribe, one's race, one's class, one's nation, is in reality a call for an all-embracing and unconditional love for all people. This often misunderstood and misinterpreted concept, so readily dismissed by the Nietzsche's of the world as a weak and cowardly force, has now become an absolute necessity for the survival of humanity. When I speak of love, I am not speaking of some sentimental and weak response. I'm speaking of that force which all of the great religions have seen as the supreme unifying principle of life. Love is somehow the key that unlocks the door which leads to ultimate reality. The Buddha taught this. That's why the shila, the precepts, compassion, is an essential part of the training along with developing our mind, our concentration, and wisdom. It is the key, he realized, to enlightenment. This Hindu, Muslim, Christian, Jewish, Buddhist belief about ultimate reality is beautifully summed up in the first epistle of St. John. Let us love one another, for love is God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. We could say the same about Buddha nature. And Buddha nature in Buddhism is not taught as being love itself, as somehow possessing the inherent quality of love, because nothing has such inherency but that it is the birthplace, the ground of compassion. That's why the closer we get, the more we approach in every moment. That which aligns us with our Buddha nature, aligns us with who we actually are. That we are closer to that ultimate reality. You know, I remember my very early years sitting by myself as I was 
growing up and figuring out what to do and the difficulty of it and the struggle of it and the aloneness of it. I didn't know anybody else who was doing this. I had no one to talk to. And even in those moments when it was difficult and I thought, what am I doing? What is this, after all? How is this actually addressing those deep things that I felt about my life that I wanted to address? I didn't know. I didn't have answers to any of those questions, nor did I have anyone to ask. But I kept going because in the midst of all of that, somehow it felt true. And I didn't know what that meant, and I didn't know how it could be, and I probably couldn't have even said that at that moment. But what I didn't realize was that in those moments, even though they were difficult, that I was somehow closer to something that we recognize as ultimate reality, the basis of all things. And so when we diminish that, when we put that into a secondary place, that's what we get to when everything else is done. Is it that there's something that we're not understanding about everything? Dr. King says, we are now faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. Dr. Rose used to teach often that when we transform our lives, that we change the wheel of karma in the present, in the future, but also in the past. Not in the sense that actions are undone, but in the sense that all that was done in the karma that was created is now being turned, in a sense, is now being transformed into something positive. Isn't that the work of every generation to receive our inheritances, the good and the bad, and do all that we can to move that forward to do what our ancestors could not or would not or did, but the work was still incomplete. We are faced with the fact that tomorrow is today. We're confronted with the fierce urgency of now in this unfolding conundrum of life and history. There is such a thing as being too late. Let me respectfully remind you Life and death are of supreme importance, not just yours. Time swiftly passes by and opportunities are lost. This day, this bountiful day, this day, with all of you, will never come again, ever. There is such a thing as being too late. Procrastination is still the thief of time. And so the teachings about diligence and effort and cultivating the sense of urgency and calming that bright fire with patience. Master Dogen says, when a person who practices compassion goes into an assembly, people take notice. He spoke of it in terms of giving. But compassion is a form of giving. People take notice. Know that the mind of such a person communicates subtly with others. That's how powerful we are. You know that when a person filled with hate enters the room, people take notice. 
It is perceived. We know that. Why do we? Why are we less trusting or less more suspicious of love, of kindness? That somehow it's less powerful. The mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. Keep on changing the minds of sentient beings from the moment that you offer one compassionate word or action to the moment that they attain the way. Or just for all of the days of your blessed life. How about that? (laughs) But of course, to change the minds of sentient beings, we have to be changing our own mind. Tadarishi used to say, if you want to save all sentient beings, you have to be prepared to be saved by all sentient beings. Goes together. And so after we finish with the talk, we'll sit for a bit. And in that, I want to invite all of us to do some meta practice, to reflect on how Dr. King and so many others, so many others, there are those that we know about because they came into the public eye and mind, but there's so many more we don't know about. Some are in this room that we move among and intermingle with who are doing that peacemaking, troublemaking, change-making, who want to change the minds of their own mind and other beings. And so in that spirit to bring forth in the immeasurables, the divine abidings, immeasurable because there's no limit as we bring forth, invoke within ourselves compassion, which, remember, is the desire to alleviate suffering in all of its forms and to bring forth loving-kindness, the selfless love. And we might just concentrate on those two in these moments we have in our zazen. And to invoke that means we have to be bringing that forth within ourselves. And you can use the word of compassion, the words of loving-kindness. We often talk about how we get entangled in the meaning of words. But here we can use the meaning of those words because when you say love within yourself, it has an affect in your body. It comes with an emotional response. You feel something. And so you can invoke that feeling state in your mind. And then you send that out with your out-breath to others, to a person, to a group, to a nation, to everyone radiate in all directions, the Buddha said. Upwards towards the sky, downwards to the depths, outwards and unbounded. And in that, you are permeated with that quality. You are changing your mind. And mind means heart, everything. But you're not just keeping that for yourself. You're extending that. You're you're sharing that. You're sending that out. You're not waiting. We have that capacity because we have mind. And so let's just spend those minutes in Zazen offering that. This is one of the oldest forms of meditation in Buddhism, going back to the Buddha. 
And then we will hear from a video clip of, that was put together by our various affinity groups as they each speak to how they within that group are benefiting from and dedicated to the work of Dr. King, sharing that with us. And then we'll end chanting the Sutra of Great Compassion. And so I'll end with the final words of Dr. King. You know, when I grew up, I was sharing this with Sean. When I was doing the poem, I was hearing my accent come out a little bit. <laughs> and I think it was because I was looking at Dr. King and remembering that when I grew up, I was a little young, born in 57, but it was all around me growing up in Atlanta. Ralph Abernathy, Isaiah Williams, Andrew Young came a little bit later. I went to school with Isaiah Williams' boys, his sons. They were my schoolmates. And I was telling Sean that used to be, there was often a murmuring throughout the, throughout the school of whether his father, their father was in jail again, having been arrested at some march. The power of that time, it's hard to appreciate now when it seemed that everything was coming apart. Nobody quite knew where it was going. And so much good was taking place, so much change. But it's the nature of change. You know, we can open a door, but the wind can blow it shut again. We can let go, but then we can grab back on again. We can change a policy, but then it can be changed back. Don't we see that again, happening again? And what that means is that nothing is permanent, and we have to keep not so much making peace as we are unmaking the illnesses of our peace. So Dr. King said, now let us begin. Let us rededicate ourselves. To the long and bitter but beautiful struggle for a new world. This is the calling of the children of God. And everyone waits eagerly for our response. Shall we say the odds are too great? Shall we tell them the struggle is too hard? Will our message be that the forces of American life militate against their rival as full people, and we should send our deepest regrets? Or will there be another message of longing, of hope, of solidarity with their yearnings, of commitment to their cause, whatever the cost? The choice is ours, and though we might prefer it otherwise, we must choose in this crucial moment of human history. Although we might prefer to be in a different time, to be in a different world, a different set of circumstances, a different mind state of world, of country, of culture, this is the time we're in. This is the opportunity we've been given.
The mind of a sentient being is difficult to change. Keep on changing the minds of sentient beings from the first moment to the last until we all attain the way. Thanks so much for listening. For meditation supplies such as cushions, incense, liturgical instruments, Dharma books, and more, visit monasterystore.org. Support for your spiritual practice at home.